boys and girls of all ages. Uh, here I am with my partner, Mike, Mike Sauter. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. I'm getting out of town for a little while. Nobody, please don't rob my house. Uh, my wife and I are going to Savannah, Georgia. Uh, all the kids have flown the coop, four kids. And this will be our first trial of, you know, just kind of doing a little vacation. We're never going to be snowbirds. I'm a, a potted plant. You know, I teach a course on Wendell Berry at the college. So uh, rootedness is kind of my thing. But Savannah, Georgia, a little bit of Hilton Head, meeting some in-laws in a part of South Carolina. My oldest daughter's in-laws, uh, you know, we'll connect with them, people we haven't spent time with since the wedding three years ago. So I look forward to the okay. whole thing. Then it's back for Holy Week, right? That sounds like that sounds like fun. Actually, it's, it's so nice. This time of year, I start to feel more alive. Have you ever seen the movie or, or read the stories of Baron Baron Munchausen? Yeah, yeah. It's like how he when he's having adventures, he gets younger. That's uh -huh. how I feel at this time of year because it, I, you know I'm out doing more farming stuff and. <laughs> yeah, and and a bad weather week is all the more painful, isn't it? Like when our bodies are saying, "Boy, I'd like to be putting a spade in the dirt," and when you can't do it, I get really. Uh, I'm either happy or more antsy. Yeah, and, and of course, our guest today is John Milbank, and their seasons are a little bit ahead of ours, even though England is far north of where Michigan and New York are. Is it all about the jet stream there? Far north, yeah. It, it's okay. entirely about the jet stream. If the, if the, if the jet stream stops, um, we're, 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 we're in the poles or something. You know, we yes. have polar bears. Uh, yeah. So. Believe no, it would be you. like Newfoundland. It would be, uh, yeah. it would be all fir trees and stuff like that. Yeah, but not, currents are really, really important. Um, in 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 South America, they have the Humboldt current, which makes the sea cold. So I thought, I thought, you know, off the Latin America, South American coast, it would be fantastic swimming and surfing. It's so cold you can't go in there. Yeah. Wow. wow. But we we've got the opposite effect. We've got a warm current yeah. that makes yeah. our western coast very significantly warmer to swim in than right. than the eastern coast. Yeah, Most all how, of that is new to me. Yeah. How surprised I was to find out that Michigan and I know where you are too, Mike, is basically at the same parallel Thank as you. Spain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which it's kind of stunning when you think about it. Uh, mm -hmm. But anyway, here we are with John Milbank. Yeah. I'm so Very honored nice. to have John on the show. Now, unlike John and Mike, I my academic training was not in theology. I'm a, you know, I started off as a musician and poet and became a Waldorf teacher for a while. And so my my grounding was always in literature and especially poetry and and uh, the plays of William Shakespeare. Now. But that then something happened, right? So then, when I after being a Waldorf teacher for all, I returned to graduate school to, to pursue a doctorate in English literature, and I was always interested in religious literature, and I wanted to work on the metaphysical poets in the 17th century, and uh, lo and behold, I found this book, The Suspended Middle, mm -hmm. by John Milbank, which actually I have to thank you, John, because that that. That book and your discussion of pure nature in there, because it unlocked the door for me. It's a huge part of your book, The Submerged Reality. Absolutely. Yeah, the yeah. Submerged Reality wouldn't have happened without that, my encountering that book. And neither actually would my doctoral dissertation, which was later published as Literature and the Encounter with God in Post-Reformation England, because that was that, that gave me a vocabulary for it. Because I didn't, you know, like I said, I didn't have this uh, grounding in historical theology until John introduced me to it. And then afterwards, um, I was so honored that my publisher sent, a, sent a, a manuscript copy of The Submerged Reality to John, who wrote a very generous uh, jacket. Uh, Dust jacket blurb, yeah. And such an honor, and, and and John has been so generous to me and kind to me ever since, and I'm so thankful and honored to be able to invite him to the program. And I'm so mad, well, in a way, that back in September, 
John and I were both invited to a conference at Cambridge for, for the Institute of Orthodox Christian Studies. Uh, they had a conference on Pablo Florensky. And I was finally so looking forward to going there and, and being able to spend some time with John in, in the flesh. But my mother was getting increasingly sick and she died like, well, six weeks after that. So I was not able to attend in person, but I did it on, online, which was, I, I was thankful for that. And I was thankful to, to, to hear John's words of wisdom in there. And it's always, always a, a, a treat to listen to John Milbank talk about anything because he, his, his interests are so wide ranging and uh, he's so insightful and he, he's, he's the kind of person, this is what I love about radical orthodoxy in, in general, but John in particular is that he has this gift for uh, a kind of acuity that cuts through received opinion and and looks in, at, at what is actually there and for, for me that's that's very uh inspiring and so thank you to the to the program here john milbank well thank, thank you very much indeed michael and uh, well that's reciprocated of course absolutely so so here today we're going to talk about amongst other things but we're going to our starting off point will be uh, this this notion that I first I think encountered in in John's uh, dialogue with Slavoj Žižek, which is the it's called in the, in the book uh, what's it called the monstrosity of Christ, and in there John drops a, a hint just just a hint about this this notion of an alternative or alternate modernity. So, John, I wonder if you could tell our listeners what you mean by that term. Well, I, th I think um, broadly what I mean is that uh, the, there's, there's one model that says everything has gone wrong since uh, the Middle Ages or the middle of the Middle Ages or, or, or something like that. And... Ever since that time, um, we've been concerned only with humanism or with naturalism. We, we've left God out of the picture. And then there's another model that says, well, you know, thank goodness for that. We, we now live in an imminent reality or an imminent frame, as Charles Taylor calls it. And uh, what we share in common is humanity and, and nature um, and, and we can leave religion out of the picture that's fine for private life you you know you can be in touch with god if if, if you like and i think that we very much need a third picture and by that i mean that i think we can't escape the fact that uh, in modern times, we've become more and more aware of uh, the mystery of our human existence. We, the mystery of the self, the creative capacities of the self. And at the same time, we've become more and more aware of the mysteries of nature and our ability to explore the mysteries of nature. And uh, the dynamic forces um, within nature. And if you like, the power of human beings to change reality and the way in which nature is itself changing. And um, in terms of evolution, um, we live within the changeability of, of nature. But to grossly simplify, I think this has left us with a problem of trying to coordinate the human and the natural or um, the human spirit and subjectivity um, with natural forces and, and, and how these cohere together um, without some kind of implausible dualism on the one hand or some sort of reductionism on the other hand or thirdly, a kind of voluntarism is something that secular reality 
um, has never been able to explain. And I think in the face of that, it's incredibly tempting. And it's tempting to a lot of young men in suits who wear ties and like kind of older kind of boomers like all of us, you know. It's very tempting to say, well, you know, let's go back to um, to, to pre-modernity. Um, let, let's forget about all this um, change stuff. Let's get back to a sort of very fixed order of, 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 of essences and the way, you know, God created things. And all this alterability stuff is, is, is very, very dangerous. And I think this is to kind of stick your head in the sand. I think for one thing, it is to ignore the fact that um, a greater awareness of humanity and nature was already there in the Middle Ages, and it was already there in, in the 12th century. You could even say that it sort of begins with, with, with Socrates, if you like, and that indeed part and parcel of a recognition of transcendence, of something beyond the cosmos, is a sense of the independence of nature and the independence of human beings and the way in which human beings at the summit of nature, transcending nature, are also in touch with something beyond nature. You know, so if you put it in these terms, kind of awareness of nature and something like a turn to the human subject has been part and parcel of our very commitment to transcendence all along. And I think, but I think the kind of the new thing that happens in the period that we sort of broadly call the Renaissance is this far greater sense of mutability, really. Um, and that everything is in flux and that there are powerful um, forces that can change things. And I think that often in the face of this, you get something like a condemnation of Prometheanism, a condemnation of Titanism. And this is a very important theme in Balthazar's work. And I suspect that Balthazar never really resolved his contradictions in the face of his attitudes towards both the Renaissance and towards German Romanticism. Uh, but I think it's, it's far too easy to talk about, you know, a dangerous Prometheanism. And in actual fact, I would want to argue that paradoxically, it's the people who are looking for a new kind of stability in the subject, a stability in epistemology, um, who are much more in danger of this. So that if you think that um, there's some kind of a priori rationality whereby we can control nature, and, and, and this sort of belongs to a picture whereby you start to have an ontology independent of God. And then because ontology means that which we can sort of fully understand that flips over into being epistemology. And so it's in this model of the subject confronting nature and the two being in a kind of unexplained correlation that in fact you get this enterprise of controlling. Yeah. So what I want to argue against uh, that is that it's actually possible to have a dynamic view that is sustaining the older sense that we are participating in in the absolute or in, or, or in God. In other words, the idea that everything has become fluid and dynamic doesn't necessarily deny the, the older participatory vision. And indeed, once more, you could say there are anticipations of that in the older vision, that Plato more than Aristotle thinks that everything is moving, everything is temporal. Augustine intensifies that sense of temporal motion. And then I think part of the trick, if you sort of hang on to this sense that although everything is dynamic and changing, everything is creative, is to link 
nature uh, and the human. In other words, you don't have a duality, precisely because nature is creating itself because it's created by God. You know, what does God the creator part, what does he give to the creation? Only himself. So what what he gives is the power to create. Right. Um, So that this is nature is creative and it comes to the head in human beings who are most of all poets. That's what they mostly are. Because they they then consciously um, create. Although, you know, the whole question of how we relate to the unconscious forces in nature um is is all important so i think that when i say alternative modernity i don't just mean a sort of modernity we should have had but didn't have because um although you could say yeah kind of the main report of modernity is bad it's it's too technological it's too much a dualism of humans and nature and humans controlling nature. Nevertheless, the alternative modernity was always there. So it, it's there in somebody like um, Nicholas Accuser. It's there in Vico. It's there even to some extent in Leibniz. And, this, and here I'm very indebted to Michael. I think he's completely right to start talking again about the, you know, the esoteric tradition and the so-called occult tradition, um, that Neoplatonism and Hermeticism never went away. They continued to be part of the scientific debate, even, even in the 18th century. You can argue that in the period of Leibniz, there's a sort of coming back of the Renaissance, the right, 18th right. century science is very vitalist. And, the, and then you get the discovery of electricity, electromagnetism, galvanism, and you start reading the world in terms of chemistry rather than physics. Um, and this has got to do with the survival of alchemical traditions. You know, we, we, we keep on discovering that this is more mainline than we we think that that people like Schelling and Hegel know this stuff. It's important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, Jakob Burma is important to them. Very important. Even if even if he may be in some ways a problematic version of this. And by the way, it's interesting that Schelling finally accuses Hegel of being too Bermanistic. Really. <laughs> Well, it's yeah. true. I mean, I, I think yeah. without, without... No, 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 no. Despite the fact that, that, that it's true of both of them. But Schelling has this wonderful remark where he says, well, you can forgive Jakob Burma because he was genuinely drunk. Hegel's <laughs> only pretending. <laughs> That's great. Such, That's true. It's I, such I, a I, terrible put down. But, <laughs> but, 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 you know, so we now realize that the Romantic movement, and even in England, people like Sir Humphrey Davy. It was mm-hmm. primarily about what we now call science. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just all arty. It, it, it was very much to do with the implications of electricity, chemis- the new chemistry, and so forth. Um, uh, and this, this gave rise to, uh, yeah, it, it, it revived a much more philosophical understanding of nature mm-hmm. and an attempt to sort of fuse again physics with philosophy, right. which, which you can think of as being more platonic. You know, it's only in Aristotle that we have a separate book called Physics and then right. a book called Metaphysics. Yeah, and I, I, which, you, you point to something yeah. important with, with Burma yeah. in particular, because he comes in and he, he behaves like an enzyme, you know, he like a ferment, which, uh, especially in Germany, uh, which, you know, doesn't change everybody entirely to, to Beamonists, but he, uh, he provides, uh, I don't know if it's permission, or he uh, allows an insight, and, and you see this in the German romantics like Novalis in particular, but you see it in Goethe. 
right? And Goethe had this incredible influence on Wordsworth, you know, and yes. Goethe, not only the poet, but Goethe, the scientist, right? Yes. How, do we, how do we look at yeah. nature, right? That's the question that comes up yeah. there. And I think that's an, it's an important and, and often ignored aspect of uh, the time since. I, I I think so. And I think Goethe has this sense that, look, because we're part of nature, um, what is inside us is inside nature. So don't we know nature from inside, mm -hmm. uh, you know, rather than this idea that we're going to know nature by, you know, just closely observing it. Yeah. That That's only part of the picture. Yeah. He, he anticipates David Bohm, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, 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 and uh, so much, there's so much that is anticipated in these people. But I think, so by alternative modernity, I think I mean very much that you need a metaphysics of creativity and that it, 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 it's it, our creativity, we can only make sense of if we see it as, a participation in the absolute or, or in God, who is himself creative, and both externally and internally creative, which is why all these people are so obsessed with, with the Trinity, you know, from Nicholas Ukiza through to Schelling, through to, through to Coleridge in, in England. Yeah. This is absolutely crucial um, for them. You know, uh, and it's it's the opposite of deism. I mean, uh, Jakob Burma would be another example that we can only talk about God if if we understand him as you know not some, somehow beyond the contrast between rest of motion, yeah, uh, beyond the contrast between being and becoming. That, that in some way he brings himself about, but not in a kind of metaphysical cause of sui way that would make a mistake, but in a, in a sense that's um, not interfering with the divine simplicity, um, but, but that nonetheless is um, more radical than simply thinking about God as perfect act. Without, without, without sort of denying God as perfect act, you, 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 you start to think, well, what, what else does does that does that imply? If you know, all our categories are, are finite categories, including the, the contrast between acts and potential and and and, and so forth. Um, I think a lot of your work, uh, John, too. You, you were talking about yeah. beyond the contrast, beyond the contrast. Another yeah. seminal one for you is beyond the contrast of individual and society, right? Yes. Um, you know, and that's where uh, I was thinking of, I put your name in Google this morning with uh, this, you know, this Robert Colasso, you know, where he too would almost say, you know, society, you both use the words society yes. in such a powerful way. And there's a frequent guest on our show and we have to have the two of you on sometime because yeah. he's- his name is Guido Preparata, and he was, a, he was at the Gregorian, yeah. but he uses, he's a sociologist who comes up to the same place you are, but it's almost using sociology to critique sociology. So he'll prove sure. with, with other sociologists that yeah. um, atomic individualism, that anthropology or that view of society cannot get at things like, in his case, uh, they were real scientists, the obesity crisis, the AIDS epidemic. And they're right. showing where that model that you so brilliantly critique of society and sociology, you know, that it's, it's insufficient even on its own terms, you know, but you've, uh, you've blown me away a couple. I want to say that the people who are bothered by the ultra ability stuff, is just such a funny way of phrasing that for me. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to yes. steal that. You know, yeah. we're always talking about yeah. the rad trads, yeah. the rad trads and the ortho bros, but you gave us yeah. another way of saying the same bothered by the ultra ability stuff. And also just a curious yeah. question for me, is uh, your difference when von Balthasar? I'm not a von Balthasar scholar. I've read a lot, but uh, where? Yeah. And I, I know you're onto something. Where would I go as an interested person on his his kind of attack on the dangers of Prometheanism? 
I think, well, I, you know, unfortunately, his uh, uh, apocalypse of the German soul has not okay. been translated. Oh, been I think yeah. it's probably the key to Belter. You know, that's his first blockbuster before he writes the other blockbusters. And uh, so we, 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 we don't have that. But oh. I think that Cyril O'Regan in English, but it, I think Cyril O'Regan in his work on Balthazar is, is absolutely right to somehow suggest that Balthazar is in a way quite tortured by the question of the relationship of orthodoxy to Neoplatonism, to Gnosticism, to Hermeticism, to apocalyptic. So the, 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 and he loves Goethe, but he's troubled by Goethe. It's so fascinating uh, what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, and, and I probably think that in relation to Balthazar, I am a bit more prepared to go on the wild side. Yeah. One more, one more thing with that. Then, when you're talking yeah. about the, um, you know, the dynamism, you know, there's a reticence yeah. to embrace the dynamic. Could that be equated in our own American land with uh, what William James was talking about, the multiverse and in the universe? You know, do you think there's something there that, um, you know, I'm a big fan of John Cowper Powis, and he, uh, you know, when, oh, when me he, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and when, yeah. Yeah, and when he, you know, for him at yeah. the end of his life, he was a brilliant, I think religious yeah. thinker but you know he was just globbing onto the multiverse i'm always trying to wrap my head around that and yes. i felt i felt some similarities when you were talking about this lack of comfort with the, the dynamic yes no that 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 could well be um what what would it mean to say there were many worlds i don't, I don't mm -hmm. know mustn't they be maybe it's a bit like society of the individual we they they have to be connected, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Re relationality is is more um, fundamental. And know? Michael would find this interesting yeah. too, because Michael, you're interested or common interest in Berjaev. You know, you're talking, John, about creativity as yeah. seminal. Yeah. Ber uh, Powys finds in Berjaev a closed universe. He says he like he points to creativity, points, and then he kind of yeah. walls it off. And this is all kind of above my head, but I'm still sinking. Yes. Something here about well, you know you're, what you're saying is a dynamic universe, you know, Michael. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I think you know all the Russians, and probably better, it's not my favorite Russian, but I think all of the kind of the sophiologists following on Soloviev are um, really it, it, it's it's a very long footnote to German Romanticism, if mm -hmm. and 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 Schelling in particular is absolutely at, at the center. Mm -hmm. Of, of, of that story, and it, it, it's in a way, perhaps an attempt to have a more orthodox version of of that of that German legacy, as I think you know, Balsa himself recognizes. But but very much the same problems are are arising. You know that the. the it, it, again, it's this question of an imminent creativity. It's a question of the relationship between the one and the all. And, you know, so above all, it, it's always a question of how does the one become many? How is it that God, if he is all in all, if he's absolute, how, how does he generate something besides himself? And I think that the Russians are very much echoing Schelling in, in suggesting that, um, you know, if if God is real, then then what is truth other than some sort of echoing of the process by which God is in himself and brings about the universe? It can't, mm -hmm. you know, truth can't just be a matter of um, a passive, nice. alienated, looking at things it, it, it has it, it, to be <laughs> yeah it, so it's that i think i think that you know people like andre bailey and these people in the russian silver age are still sort of echoing this basically german, german romantic view that sort of philosophy and poet, po poetry are two sides of really the same thing absolutely um the you know the the, the, the is trying to understand everything in his 
subjectivity and and the poet or the artist is trying to to bring that about in in an object it's trying to show the infinite in 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 something in something finite you know um and and for all these people i think and this is the kind of thing that you know sort of half fascinates half worries Baltazar. for all of these people this is an eschatological process and ultimately it's rooted i mean shelling this is massively clear in a kind of alchemical legacy and this link of alchemy and chiliasm that you had back in england in the 17th century right. it's still powerfully so that you know you are trying to transform reality you are trying through art to to beautify the world and that is the same process by which you're trying to divinize yourself um you know that you're trying to leave the world and yet at the same time transfigure the world you know i mean you can see it in in tarkovsky's film andre rubiev i mean this is not to be read it's naive to read it as simply traditional orthodox piety. It's not. It's absolutely suffused with this Russian variant of, 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 of romanticism, you know, that is a deep blending of things that you can see as perfectly orthodoxly Christian, and yet also things that are usually categorized as, as esoteric. You are so then, fascinating. You're so fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think what you're, saying, what you're saying, John, and I think this is important with you. Yeah. Have, I, I think what you're describing is that this kind of worldview, you know, is is grounded in revelation, right? Absolutely. Art and science should be revelation. Yeah. Not control. Everything right now, right? This. Everything, everything is a revelation, and uh, you know what we call revelation is is a sort of coming to head ahead of that. Yeah. So you know it's a revelation, all revelation, perhaps. Um, yeah, I don't. I think. I think you know. I. I. I think we we can only now have this kind of sort of poetic metaphysics, if, 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 if you like. That's my thought too, um, yeah. Uh, and and the, the, the other stuff is, is, just, is just not going to, not going to work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it's very sort of rationalistic approach that in, in the end is sort of an attempt to go back to Volfos or, or something, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, as it collapses, right? Yeah, I think I think I think so. So, um, so where do I mean, this is this is where this is where I mean, I'm trying to sort of read Schelling at the moment. What I find so fascinating is the way he talks about the positive, and and it, it's kind of can be almost shocking. He'll say, um, you know, it's not enough just to talk about God in negative terms. You've actually somehow got to begin with the divine viewpoint. And, and your first reaction is to say, oh no, that can't be the case. But what he means by this is that like even negative theology, if you take it too abstractly, you're divorcing it from mysticism. You know, negative theology only works because in some sense you, you are saying you are in touch with God. You're, you're, mm -hmm. you're, you're negating all these reasons that's necessary insight some yeah. level of positive intuition and after all you know Dionysus is the area of Oppegaard says the mystical is beyond the negative and the positive mm -hmm. it's a negation of the negation right. I'm going to write a book called negative negative theology yeah <laughs> and I think you know the question so the question with Schelling but with sort of romanticism in general is often so well is this too much like a kind of arrogant gnosis and this would be Balthazar's worry yeah, yeah, uh, and is he sort of underplaying faith but on the other hand Schelling is sort of worried that faith will be something abstract too fideistic not mystical enough 
And I, as I say, I'm, I'm still trying to work this stuff out. But the incredible thing is that Schelling, uh, I mean, he kind of rather fell out with people like Jacobi, but he knew Eschenmeyer. Eschenmeyer, who was close to Jacobi, is a huge friend. So they, they actually have this debate and this, this kind of um, interaction going on which involves also this very complicated debate about nature and the relation to subjectivity and whether Schelling thinks of subjectivity ultimately into unconscious way that can then sort of turn into sort of Zizek type materialism right. and, and so forth, you know. Um, and, uh, but, but, I, but I think that, you know, it's very important to read this stuff and to realize that kind of probably the romantic epoch and i i would add to this you know french romanticism as well especially main de biron and the the current that becomes french spiritualism mm -hmm. and eventually through ravisson Schelling, and the sort of tie up between Schelling and, and ravisson but i think i think we're going to have to reckon more and more with the you know the complexity of 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 the of this period, um, and I think I think one thing that is sort of embarrassing from a Catholic point of view is that um, it's very clear that particularly the German Romantics, the people coming out of the Tubingen school, yeah. were yeah. completely ill at ease with the way Catholicism went. So they didn't like. Um, papal infallibility. They didn't like the declaration of uh, the Immaculate Conception because they thought that this was, this would look like a misunderstanding of the way dogmas emerge to process. Even, even with the, know, dogma, the dogma of the transubstantiation, yeah. right? That also turns, it's trying to turn it into science, right? And, 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 yeah. And, and I mean, it depends, you know, the way you understand transubstantiation. But I think, I think that, you know, there are there are difficult questions for whether, you know, the Catholic Church somehow bought too much mm -hmm. into neo-scholasticism, which is an inherently incredibly modern model. That's too much linked to epistemology and positivism right, right. and so on. And the, the problem is that some of the actual doctrinal moves it's made compromise it, I think, mm -hmm. in, in, which doesn't mean that you can't sort of think out of it as this. Right, and right. I think, and, you know, uh, and I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of people in France and Italy and so on who are thinking, outside this, but I think that they kind of more and more realize that it, it is this spirit of romanticism that mm -hmm. you are essentially reviving, you know, that, or in a sense, everything had already happened before the 20th century, you know, now we're in another century. I think we're realizing this, like the Nouvelle Theology is deeply, deeply embedded in, in, in French Romanticism and Biron, Ravisson, Blondel, Bergson, yep. et cetera. It's profoundly embedded in that. And, and then kind of Russian sophiology is profoundly embedded in 19, the, you know, the 19th century sort of silver age, symbolist reworking mm -hmm. of, 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 of that, you know. So, and I think, I think what we're now seeing in theology is that it's parallel to the return to metaphysics in the secular world with specula speculative realism and all that and, and, and shelling often the linking part. What, what we're now seeing is, is a kind of break with the model of um, kind of no, no metaphysics and then some sort of fideism. So sort mm -hmm. of so like Heidegger plus Barth or um, Wittgenstein plus Barth. Right. You know, that in a way dominated 20th century theology. No. And if you look at what people are now interested in, it's terribly clear that as there's a sort of return to this kind of romantic metaphysics. This is actually something I've been, been thinking about a lot lately. So I spent much of my career as a professor teaching students how to write. And 
so I often have students who are not necessarily English majors in my courses, you know, like they're psychology majors. And I say, we always, I always tell them, isn't that the worst stuff to read in the world is contemporary psychology? And then you look at the history of psychology. You even go back to Freud, go to Freud, Jung, yeah. that, that first half of the 20th century. And they were such great writers and they were so imbued with romanticism. And you also see this yeah. in uh, the, the Brothers Grimm and all, all the people who were oh yes yes who were, who were collating all the folk stories and folk songs. There were so many Clemens, Brentano, and yes, all these yes. people. Yeah, and, oh, and, it's and, astonishing and, how how much of this. Bring it back. <laughs> I know. Well, I, I I I agree. Just as I tend to think, you know, it's a pity that kind of our nouveau didn't carry on and we got mm -hmm. kind of modernist. I love stuff like Gaudi and uh, 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 and, and people people like that and um, I, I I think you're precisely right about psychology that we still lack um, work that would really do a sort of genealogy of, of modern psychology and psychoanalysis you know that Again, these ideas about the unconscious are coming from the romantics. Exactly. They often have a religious background. They often, um, the, the question of our relationship to nature is, 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 is very, very, very important. You know, the, the unconscious is really quite close to the divine. And uh, obviously somebody like Jörg echoes this, but I have to say for my, my, my taste, not in a very, successful way but but there's it's too skeptical at some level i think um um but 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 undoubtedly so that you know the the ink as as a, a pupil of mine once said to me you know the incoherence of psychoanalysis is it's trying to heal the soul without believing in the soul you right. know, or, or the incoherency of a lot of a lot of therapy. But then if you look back at, you know, the discourses that tried to understand the relationship of the soul to body and soul to nature, mm -hmm. you know, stretching back to Robert Burton again, again, we're looking at things that we would often call esoteric. Absolutely. And I think what, what you see... And it's occultism that, that's pre-generating this these things. So, yeah. so what we see with that, though, is uh, psychology and psychoanalysis in the early days was an interpretive art. And now it's become a prescriptive one, including prescriptions, right? Yeah. Um, so, and, and you saw the same thing over the course of the 20th century in literary studies where and you see this still in universities. It's, it's a, it's, it's a, there's a residue of it in universities. And there's, and there's where they try to turn everything into science, right? Yeah, and you know, perfectly respectable people who would never commit crimes, or at least, you know, not ones that you're going to be arrested for, you know, say things like, well, I'm not here to give you moral prescriptions. I don't make judgments. <laughs> well, so what kind of advice is it if we're talking about, you know, human behavior and flourishing that isn't ethical advice? Yeah. It can only be bad advice. I mean, I mean, you know, and this, uh, and of course they get paid for it. You know, can you imagine what Socrates, handsomely, handsomely? What would Socrates have said? Yeah, yeah. And that that kind of brings up too, Dr. Milbank is, uh, um, you know, your the genesis of so much of your work. You know, the aporia with uh, individual and society we mentioned, but also this alternative modernity involves. You're foregrounding the work of church, you know, as a as an alternate. Could you describe that for people who don't know your work so well? Uh, yes. Well, I I I think that you know we only because we've got the idea of the church have we sort of radically qualified the place of the political, you know that. Um, you could say that um, in the antique world, you know, the, the, the political was the bounds of the ethical and, and, it, and it, 
perfectly rightly, you know, the ethical is ultimately about achieving a harmony. But, you know, both for the Old Testament and for the or the Hebrew Bible and the classical world, that meant ultimately a sort of legal practice and a political practice and a, and a coercive practice and a practice that sort of stopped with judgment. But, but the idea that there is a kind of anarchic um, polity uh, that, that was never ever begun because it's rooted in it, eternity and, and it is, um, it's, it, it's echoing the, the incarnation and the expression of the father in the son and it's a completely personal and relational order uh and it and it's it's more fundamental that 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 than the political state and it's international and it's about reconciliation and uh the exchange of gifts and the searching for not just a live and let live but a real a real loving community, you know, that this is what the church is. And um, Augustine is very clear, you know, some people who think they're in the church aren't, and other people who don't know they are. are yeah. you know? yeah. And I think one needs to interpret that in the most radical and generous way possible to, to understand that the church, you know, at once is something real and, embodied in ritual more primarily than institutional but also institutional forms and yet it's something that extends beyond that mm -hmm. not just that it's kind of invisible but that it's more concrete manifestations of not being recognized and i think i think tom holland is completely right to suggest that once you kind of release this idea of the privacy of love and forgiveness in, in the world. You can't stop its kind of cascading echo and that, and that goes on cascading even through secular society and in some ways its implications are more followed through by people outside the church than obviously by Christians. You know, mm -hmm. once you've said, well, you know, love is all you need. How do you say that? How would you get that song unless there's a Christian outcome? I mean, you can come back and say, well, actually, that might be forgetting something that the Jews rightly knew about. And that, you know, and that might be a needed correction. But all the same, it's clear that it's coming, I think, from this kind of... Um, cascading effects and I, d I do think that it's the church space that has um, given rise to this sense of the primacy of 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 the social space right. and then right. another, you know so another bad aspect of the modernity that we actually have is that the political and the economic are seen as more important so making money and pursuing power are seen as more fundamental than, than associating, right. despite uh, the uh, fact that it's only associating, paradoxically, it's only associating that keeps order. You know, you can have all the constitutions and the guarantees in, in, in the world, but in the end, it's only relating, it's only the checks we have on each other and the checks that one country has on another country through a kind of federation. It's actually only society that keeps order. Mm -hmm. Now, that's, I, that's fascinating. And I, I think one of the things I think where, where feminism went off the rails is it became about money and power and not about ontology. But so what I wanted to ask you now is, I think a really important essay of yours, at least to me, is, is your, your essay on sociology and theology. Which I tried Absolutely, to get. Yeah. I tried to get permission it was to, to republish. A turning point for me. Yeah. yeah I yeah. tried to get permission to republish it from. I think it was Ashgate who published it. And they were my publisher at the time. And they. Well, so that would be a million pounds or something. It's yeah. about what they charged. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry, oh, million well. dollars. They were nuts. Yeah. So, but that's an important essay, and and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role of of sociology, or Sophia, in this alternate alternate modernity we've been we've been discussing 
because I think it's it's central to that essay, and I think it's a, a curative thing for our, our society now. Yeah, well, I, I suppose, you know, Sophia, in, in one respect, and it's, of course, it's all in the Bible, by the way, all you Protestants in middle America, I'll just explain it, is actually in the Bible. Um, Save your comments, um, folks. Read the good book. <laughs> read, just read the good book. It's all that. And, and uh, you know, it is, it's, it's, it's the imminence of God in the world, and it's significantly um, characterized as 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 a female presence so it, it it's a kind of a, a curious sort of passive receptivity passive activity if you like it's yeah. a re, it's a receptivity that is also active uh, uh and so the fact that it, it's cast as a kind of female creativity i think is 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 very important but then you know as the russians insist i mean this eminence of God really is God. So you know, it really is the 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 divine essence, um, and and it is also something that's somehow at once objective and subjective. I think it's it, you know, there's there's an ancient debate. You know, there are three persons in the Trinity and one essence, and sort of is the essence impersonal. Well, no, I think it's a kind of personifying power. It is Sophia. It, 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 it is, um, it, it, yeah, it's, it's a kind of shared objectivity that is nonetheless not um, in, impersonal. And so in some sense, it is also a kind of shared personality, I yeah. think, for, for the way that the, the uh, sophiologists are, are, are thinking so um there's a sense of the way you're kind of mediating between essence and persons and and the way in in relation to christ that you're mediating between um his two natures and, and one person so that often you'll find the russians talk about the human nature of christ as as also sophia yeah, so in yeah, a way, yeah. he's sort of bringing together um, the two sapphires, and this is why the natures are are at once separate and yet and yet uh, you know fused to some kind of mysterious change of attributes going on. And that's also that's also why I think the um, it, 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 it it's. Um, Partly for that reason that, you know, you've got this sort of imminence of Sophia that is eternal. And therefore, uh, this is kind of where it gets controversial, that, you know, it, it becomes impossible or impiously abstract to sort of say you could have God without without his creation. Because, you know, if 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 God simply is the God who 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 creates, um, then God is the God, um, you know, the essence of God is also the immanence of the world. And if, you know, if, if God lacks nothing in himself, then he doesn't, you know, he doesn't even lack generosity in himself. So this is where, okay, this is where I would want to be bold. And I would want to suggest that a thousand sermons about God's, you know, remarkable generosity in, in giving something that he doesn't need, but he gives to us. I think this is incredibly superficial. It's a, it's a failure to th really think either theologically or philosophical because God can't lack anything in himself. If, if God brings about the finite, then this is in some sense what God is, you know, that, that this is why Arugada is right to talk about um, created God. The, there must be something that God realizes for himself in bringing about creation, um, because there isn't anything outside God. 
Yet there is no relationality or generosity or whatever lacking to God. So, so um, it must be, and already, you know, already Gregory of Nyssa intimates this, and Arugana says it more strongly, that there must be some inherent good to finitude. You know, there must be. Um, and this is where it becomes paradoxical and impossible to think about. You know, finitude adds nothing to infinitude, and yet apparently it does. What, what, there must be some inherent good um, about, about, about limitation, as my friend uh, Peter Larkin, the poet, says. You know, there must be. I think that's, I think that's Coventry Patmore's. Otherwise, Coventry Patmore. Absolutely. That's his main thing. Yeah, yeah. That is so. You had forgotten that, but you are yeah. absolutely right about That's that. That's his so main theme. His main it's theme. It's like it is kind of this sort of radical um, kenosis, and totally. you know. So it's just, and after all, again, for the guys out there, the Bible Christians out there on the plains. I mean, how else do you make sense of the doctrine of atonement? You know that. It, 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 uh, you know, an orthodox God doctrine of atonement is not just God being nice. God can't lose his own glory. Uh, you know, so evil is a contradiction for, for God. So, so, you know, the restoration of the world, this, what I'm talking about is this kind of alchemical healing that matters to God. It, 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 it's crucial. And this, and this is why we're seeing, you know, the, the the manifestation in 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 the incarnation of, of this kind of both at once the the natures are separate and yet they're joined so another thing that is very crucial for the Russians and what I would see as this sort of more radical version of orthodoxy that is part of this new modernity that we need you know is the insistence on the eternity of the incarnation so the incarnation happens in time but it also disclosed something to something that is eternally true yeah. because um that has to be the case if god is simple and 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 if and if christ is god there are there is no change that that happens to God. So even though this somehow happens once in time, it is it has to be eternally the case, and therefore you can flip it round. And I also think so. At that point, you you, you know you could also say that um, um, ultimately we see that the creation. Is not other to God. We see that. We see that in the incarnation, um, and uh, so I agree with uh, uh, Daniel Jordan Wood about this. And and you can, he's right to read Maximus that way. There is an implied identity of, of incarnation and creation. It's impossible to read him any any, any other way. And and although this sounds kind of speculative. And although one is saying, in effect, yeah, well, God is able, the incarnation happens, yes, to redeem the world, but it only happens because God is incarnate, because, you know, because that is an eternal fact in excess of its occasion. And even actually Aquinas says that. So, so that I think that what we get to at, the, at that point is the way in which the Russians from Solovyev onwards um, uh, sort of integrate this theme of the eternal divine humanity that frankly they've got from Swedenborg. I mean, so that, you know, um, Solovyev sat reading Maximus and Swedenborg alongside each other in the British Museum, probably quite close to where Karl yeah. Marx was adding another footnote to Schelling, you know. And you know, then Sophia in, appears in, to him, right? In a, nearby, in a nearby desk. And I'm sure Sophia appeared to both of them, but yeah. Karl Marx may not notice. But, but <laughs> um, yeah, so, so, so the, 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 this sense of, and it's, it's, it's like you get in William Blake, you know, eternal human form divine. Right. The, that he does in those kind of glorious, glorious pictures. And although that's unspeculative, 
and you know, I'm, I'm hoping my friend David Bentley Hart will agree here. I'm pretty sure he will. It it fits actually better with the ambiguity of a lot of the terminology in the New Testament. So it's not wrong to parse this in terms of the pre-existence of the logos and so on, but actually um, it doesn't manifestly make those distinctions. You know, it sounds as if it could also be talking about a pre-existent um, humanity and that, you know, the, the, the son of man, the son of God, the, 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 these are eternal figures just as the Logos is is an eternal. So there is a kind of eternal creation, and uh, that doesn't mean the creation is equally, it is, it is radically contingent, and yet, you know, God is the loving God who has created God, the God who, the Father who comes out of himself um, into the reality of the sun out of this unfathomable unconsciousness that only is the father in bringing about the sun is the same God who has brought about creation and you know creation in God is is the sun and the, the return of creation in God is 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 the Holy Spirit or or inversely you know the the, the logos for us is is the man God in whom we are all ultimately you know in, in included you know right um, Here's, this is why uh, I mean, if people John's... start to say pantheism and pantheism absolutely don't care because you know that those words are just an excuse for not actually thinking <laughs> being radical and orthodox and uh i think it's so helpful and it's so refreshing to hear Anytime I hear you speak, John, it's always refreshing. For sure, wow. because it's inspiring and it's and it's clear. You know, in many things you say, you know, I remember when I when I read the suspended middle. I'm like, why did I realize this before? Um, well, I was so like that when I read initially to back and Balthazar myself, but mm -hmm. the penny click, but carry yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. So to you know to Bloody start drop. winding up a little, I think what I'd like to ask you, John, is where do you see the alternate modernity now. Where is evidence of that now? So we've we've done a kind of historical survey of it. Where is it now? Well, maybe maybe with you on your farm, Michael. You know, uh, I I I think um, it, it's it's not it's not very or something like Paul Kingsnorth in in Ireland. Um, I think it's 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 not very clearly a manifest except amongst the minority. But I think our concern with our the relationship to the natural world is absolutely crucial. So um, when I talk about you know the reinterest in the romantics or looking again at the American transcendentalists or something like that, you know it's it's clear that you know our concerns about nature are absolutely at the center of that, you know, and that, that's been going on, if you like, through the 60s. It's, it's maybe the better, the more interesting bit of the 60s legacy. And um, so I think people thinking seriously about that, and if you like to oversimplify once again and divide things into three once again, I think on the one hand, you, you, you've got sort of, techno populists, maybe people like Trump, who hope there's going to be some kind of technical fix. Um, and on the other hand, um, you've got kind of the green control freaks who, who, <laughs> who think that, you know, some kind of central plan um, whereby most of us have to kind of save energy and live totally miserable lives uh, while, while they live super luxury. Um, and in general, we'll all be controlled by surveillance and all jobs will be done by robots and nobody will mind because, <laughs> you know, zoned out watching endless screens. So there are those people. And then, then there are people who think, well... Please tell me there's a third. Please tell me there's a third. Yeah, I'm hoping there's a third. I'm desperately trying to think about that. But, but, you know, the third will be people who say, well, you know, actually, 
it, it really is a spiritual crisis. There isn't a technical solution, either of the first kind or of the second kind. There isn't simply a technical solution. On the contrary, um, what we need to do is have a totally different relationship to nature and to technology. So unless we start to see nature as sacred, unless we think of our technical implements as kind of embedded in liturgy, as art and liturgy, as, as sort of enabling our human creative expressiveness, and, uh, and as opening up uh, a vision of the transcendent. You know, think of a medieval Gothic cathedral, or for that matter, of, of a mosque or, 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 of, or, of, or of Buddhist temples. I mean, it, it, you incredible technical ingenuity, um, uh, uh, but, but, but actually fused with this sense of the theurgic. Right. Yeah, and, uh, I, and there was a moment where, where the yeah, we, for instance, we need theurgic right. technology. Mm -hmm. That that will be it. Uh, uh, and uh, and then we need to discover that we once again we are the priests of nature. Nature is the divine poem. We're supposed to be bringing it to perfection. We we need to we did where ultimately striving to recover our, like Emerson, you know, our lost paradisal relationship to nature, where, where somehow we ourselves bring nature about. Nature right. flows out through us, you know, mm -hmm. um, as, as you find in, in, in Arugada. And of course, that would be the eschaton. But, you know, this is maybe where I'm a bit different from Balthazar, you know, is is history just irrelevant or or is there some sense in which truly we are our working is helping to bring about about the end you know this is this, this is the kind of the more russian stress mm -hmm. yeah that's where i am yeah that's our, our participation in that i mean i think you know yeah true that the yeah, eschaton is always already happening yeah, we're, we're anticipating and participating in it, and and the despite the fact that we're screwing up, somehow well, we're not. Right? Uh, <laughs> we've got to have faith that we're not <laughs> the infallibility, not of the Pope, but of the human race. In right, some and, and and if we and if, if our consciousness is bent toward that participation in the sacred, that that has one effect. If it's part, if our our consciousness is uh, focused on a participation in the technocracy, we have a quite different result, right? Yeah, I so, think and, so. Yeah, and just a matter, and, and that's just a matter of, uh, I think, a, a transfiguration of thinking in a way. Yeah, it's a good phrase. All right. Well, well, John, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such a, a delight for me. Really, really true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And no, it's been very enjoyable. It would be yeah, wonderful. absolutely. And, yeah. and and give my give my best to Allison. I will do yes. And tell yes. her I, we're gonna ha I'm gonna come after her to interview her as well because I've been thinking about yeah. it for a bit. You should. Okay. You should. All right. Thanks, Thanks a lot, John Milbank. Thanks. And Thanks both of you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael and Michael. Take care now. <laughs> and thanks everybody for listening to the Regeneration yeah. Podcast. See you next time.